Yoshi, and you are listening to the Physio Podcast. Today, we will be discussing the digestive system, metabolism, and aspects of the endocrine system. I hope you're excited because this is the last episode of the series. As a disclaimer, I obtained all of the information in this podcast from Meyer in her two lectures titled Bio 3200 ML12 and Bio 3200 ML13 and Silverthorne's Human Physiology. Let's get started with an understanding of the digestive system. The digestive system is how we derive energy from the food we eat. Food enters at our mouth, travels down the esophagus, to the stomach, then to the small intestine and large intestine, and whatever is not digested exits the body. Types of motility that help food travel through all of these places includes peristalsis and segmentation. Peristalsis moves food through the organs while segmentation mixes and combines the food. How I remember the difference is that I think P is for propelling the food and S is for swirling it around. Another aspect of digestion is the actual breaking down of the food through secretions. This is done by certain enzymes and fluids. Specifically, the stomach has cells that release HCL into the lumen in order to break down food. Likewise, the pancreas secretes sodium bicarbonate to help regulate pH in the intestine. Lastly, the liver secretes bile, a molecule that emulsifies fats to help break them down. Quick break it down time. True or false, the pancreas secretes HCL into the lumen of the small intestine. False, the small intestine should not be acidic as this would interfere with its absorptive functions. The pancreas secretes sodium bicarbonate not HCL, in order to neutralize any kind of acidity from the food. The last two aspects of the digestive system are the actual digestion and absorption. Depending on what kind of macromolecule one is digesting, there are a few different ways of digesting and absorbing them. Proteins are transported by transcytosis. This is the endocytosis on the apical side, followed by exocytosing the load on the basolateral side. Protein digestion also utilizes enzymes called peptidases that cleave the proteins. Fat digestion utilizes bile to make small droplets of fat that are coated by the salts, as we talked about earlier. These are further packaged as micelles and travel across membranes in this way, while chylomicrons travel through the lymphatic system. Sugars, on the other hand, are broken down depending on their sizes. The largest type, polysaccharides, are broken down by amylases. Disaccharides are broken in half into monosaccharides, which can be sent across cells by transport proteins. The small intestine is where the absorption of nutrients occurs. I remember the three parts of the small intestine with this mnemonic. Just do it. But remembering it should go in order of the parts, which which would be do just it. Duodenum, jejunum, ileum. I hope this helps. Just as a helpful hint, the large intestine is where a majority of water absorption occurs. Now, we will move on to a discussion of the phases of digestion. The cephalic phase of digestion is the starting point. Here, we are mechanically breaking down food in the mouth and chemically through the release of salivary enzymes. We also prepare our body for our next meal by increasing both the movement of the organs and the secretions necessary to help digest food. Let's break this concept down with a thought question. What is the function of mucus in adding fluid to the food in the mouth? Well, mucus and other secretions help with the food moving. If something is too dry, it will be harder to move. Imagine your ring was stuck on your finger. 
adding some oil or something smooth helps it come right out. That same explanation serves for the saliva. The gastric phase encompasses the role of the stomach. In the stomach, food is stored before it moves through the intestines. Here, it is where the breaking down of nutrients occurs through enzymes like lipase and pepsin. Also, the gastric mucus cells secrete mucus in order to create a wall that protects the stomach cells from the acidic nature of the lumen of the stomach. It is also important to note that absorption does not occur in the stomach. Lastly, the intestinal phase involves regulating pH. When food enters or exits the intestines and recycling nutrients with organs, the intestinal phase thus encompasses the release of certain nutrients from the other digestive organs. Also, this last phase encompasses the defecation process. Now, we will be discussing metabolism as a whole. The first thing I wanted to note is that we can get glucose from two processes, meaning that glucose is the end product. These two processes are gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis. The processes differ in that the first uses amino acids to make glucose, while the other breaks down glycogen into glucose. Metabolism is essentially the breaking down or building up of molecules in order to either release energy or use it up. I want to discuss now the differences and similarities between the fed and fasted states. An increase in glucose levels would mean that we are in the fed state. This could occur following eating. When these levels become too high, insulin is secreted in order to promote glucose reuptake into the cells. Specifically, higher glucose levels would activate the beta cells of the endocrine pancreas to secrete insulin, therefore causing the liver to break down this excess glucose or store it, or transport it to the tissues that need it. This causes the blood glucose levels to decrease overall. Also, an aspect of the fed state is that because we have enough energy in the form of glucose, we would switch to using that energy to make molecules, better known as anabolism. The fasted state, on the other hand, would activate glucagon secretion from the alpha cells of the pancreas, meaning that plasma glucose levels would increase. Our main goal is to make glucose in the state by, by glycogenolysis or gluconeogenesis, as we talked about earlier. These would be catabolic processes. How about we break this down? If glycogen synthesis is occurring and not glycogenolysis, would, be, would we be in the fasted or fed state? Exactly, this is an aspect of the fed state. I remember this because I think in the fed state, if we have enough glucose, we want to get it out of the plasma. We can do this by oxidizing the glucose or storing it as glycogen, which is glycogen synthesis. Let's transition into our last segment of this episode. I want to compare and contrast cortisol and thyroid hormones. Cortisol is a steroid hormone that is released from the adrenal cortex. Its main functions are to inhibit the immune system, stimulate synthesis of glucose in the liver, and break down proteins and lipids. Hypercortisolism with Cushing syndrome causes a person to gain weight. I believe the reason you may gain weight with an increase in cortisol is because of its relation with glucagon. Glucagon is secreted and helps release glucose into the bloodstream with the help of cortisol. This occurs in the fasted state. In a state of fast, you feel hungrier. So I believe that this increase in appetite causes you to eat more, thus gaining weight. Now, let's talk about thyroid hormones. I have a symbol or analogy to remember the functions of the thyroid hormones. 
GMT is the first letter of growth, metabolism, and thermogenesis. GMT is also the reference for all time zones. Thyroid hormones play a role in regulation, so they can be thought of as reacting to certain reference points. Graves' disease is characterized by TSI molecules that essentially increase TSH receptor activation, causing an increase in T3 and T4, but these do not respond to feedback regulation. A person develops a goiter in this disease. When someone has a goiter, there is still an increase in TSH receptor activation, but in this situation, low T3 and T4 means that feedback is occurring, and without a lack of iodine, the conversion of T4 to T3 cannot take place. Cortisol and thyroid hormones are both regulated by upstream elements. What I mean by this is that the hypothalamus secretes releasing enzymes, CRH and TRH for cortisol and thyroid hormones respectively, and then the anterior pituitary releases stimulating hormones, ACTH and TSH, that cause the release of cortisol and thyroid hormones from the respective organs, aka the adrenal cortex and the thyroid gland. They have a very similar pathway of being released as both of these molecules can feed back negatively on the upstream hormones to stop their release. Differences between these hormones is that cortisol is a steroid hormone while thyroid hormones are amine hormones. This means they have differences in storage and in synthesis. That's it for today, everyone. Thank you for listening to this series. I hope you learned something new in every episode. As a reminder, the information in this episode was learned from Meyer and Silverthorne. Bye now! Thank you.